0: Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital for the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning everyone. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, We'll be in chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. Kind of finishing off uh, Paul's prayer for the saints as he trails off to kind of describe the power of God. As you're turning to the passage um, and before we read our text today, I just want to begin with a word of encouragement. Um, Instead of continuing full speed ahead, I just want to stop for a minute and encourage you with Psalm 130, something that is was a huge blessing to me this week. Uh, each week, I encounter so many people that waffle back and forth um, about their sin, and I don't mean that sometimes they sin and sometimes they don't sin. Uh, you know, everyone is usually sinning at some, you, you know, pretty regularly. And uh, what I really mean is that they're really waffling back and forth about their need for grace and their understanding at how much they need this. And some of us sit down to, to watch this uh, recording of, of a sermon and our, our time together, and you know, we feel completely unworthy, and we feel ashamed. And we've had an awful week. We haven't cracked the word, we have not thought about God. We have just tried to hold it together and all the things that are going on, and we come feeling shameful to the scriptures. And there's others of us that feel pretty good about how we did. Um, You know, we can watch this sermon with a little more confidence um, that we're in the right place and we're doing the right thing. Brothers and sisters, certain moments in your life are going to feel better than other ones and uh, it will make us feel better about ourselves. But inevitably, God will graciously open our eyes to the fact that we need Him at all times. I just want to remind you this is true. And we will eventually get to the place, different times in our life, when we, with Paul, say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, Psalm 130 kind of meets us in that place. And truthfully, it's this place of sinful discouragement. And he says this Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Guys, you and I are very weak. We're stained sinners. We're strugglers. We have failed the God of creation. But he's faithful. He loves. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. If I can just say this then, hope in God, brother. Hope in God, dear sister, Despite the difficulties of this week, and despite your own sin and rebellion against this God, because of Jesus Christ's great work on the cross, there is forgiveness of your sin. We know that all this was made possible by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Him, we glory and say, Hallelujah. God in Christ has taken our sin and redeemed us. But today, Paul is going to point out some of the other important aspects of what Christ did. Uh, Paul is going to shift our attention briefly to the resurrection, but then to the enthronement of Christ over all things. And perhaps this is a believed doctrine. I mean, no one disputes that this happened, uh, but I'd say it's certainly underemphasized. Um, not many of us recount with any familiarity the different aspects of Christ's enthronement. Um, But maybe we should. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 19 of chapter 1, and we're going to read to verse 23. If you remember, Paul's just prayed for the believers uh, to know the hope of his calling and to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And now we come to verse 19, and he says this, to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might Oh God, we worship you together. We praise you, the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. In Christ, Lord, you you secured your treasured possession, your people, us. We're humbled by your great act of redemption, and we cry together, holy is your name. You've not left us to flounder or or struggle in ways that we don't know how to go forward. But, Lord, you've left us to thrive by giving us the promised Holy Spirit. We thank you for this. We pray for your guidance today as we open up your word. Would you please give us your grace? Would you tear down the idols in our hearts? And would you rather, Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know God? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. C.S. Lewis understood the nature of the unseen realm, uh, I mean, he believed very strongly in the powers that were at work against the Christian Church. Uh, he wrote about it in many of his books, but none are more more clear and so blatant as when he addressed it in the Screw Tape letters. Uh, through a series of lessons, a, a senior demon educates his inexperienced and somewhat incompetent nephew about the art of temptation for those that he would come along and talk, talk to. For Lewis, the spiritual battle described in the scriptures was real. He knew that it was real, understood and felt the effects of it being real, and did everything that he could, literally, to express this and make his readers aware of this reality. Martin Luther, another man, understood the great power that was at work in the heavenly places. Listen to a few of the words of his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and notice what he's talking about. Perhaps you'll think about it in a new way as we go forward. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Or how about when he says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. He goes on, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther understood spiritual warfare. He knew what was going on, although his natural eyes could not see it. He knew it was real. He knew that the demonic world was in fury against Christ's kingdom. He knew that they would blind as many eyes as they could and wage war against the throne of heaven and every human that they could get their hands on. I'm not sure that, I have taken the spiritual realm quite as seriously as Lewis or Luther or so many others throughout the ages who understand demonic powers. Actually, I'm, I'm not sure if I've regularly read the Bible seriously when it talks about spiritual warfare around us. I often think of the natural world you know, and people just as that, natural, as what I can see. I mean, maybe you can think about some of the mental things that go on, but I mean, pretty much natural in most of those ways. When institutions and businesses and individuals make wicked choices and do wicked things, I mean, I often chalk it up to their own depravity. Um, And this is certainly still true. That's a true doctrine, understanding the depravity of man. But it doesn't take seriously that Paul teaches that behind these earthly and human institutions our powers and authorities at work to gain dominion in the natural world actually having their root in the spiritual world. I am amazed at how much Ephesians deals with the unseen, the heavenly realm, the realm of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Or he says, the realm of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Looking, you'll see that in Ephesians 6:12. And this wasn't lost on the people that Paul was writing to. They understood exactly what he's talking about. They understood the powers in the heavenly places. The city of Ephesus was the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis, or as the Romans would say, Diana. This and All sorts of other Hellenistic religions included sordid practices, some that you know of, prostitution and sacrifice and mysterious ceremonies, also magic and astrology. One of the reasons these religions held such sway was due to the fact that they were actually recognizing real powers, real things, real might. Many of the Christians hearing this letter were probably saved out of some sort of magical cult or perhaps some sort of place where demon worship was very normal and understood the incredible power that was evidenced in real ways in real people's lives where people would be bound by the power of these demons and authorities and rulers, having dominion over them to their detriment. In short, these powers were real. Um, They were strong. They were scary. Uh, And and they were to be respected, even worshipped. It's into this context that Paul writes to these Christians. These Christians have every natural reason to fear the repercussions of their choice to follow Christ because they realize they're no longer going to give their tithe or their gifts to these demon powers. They're at a place of vulnerability to them. They know that following Jesus and rejecting the demons they once worshipped could result in serious consequences. I mean, consider for a moment how you might be fearing ostracization from other peoples in your community, or perhaps the, 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 you know, the actual collapse of your own business because people will not do business with you anymore. Or think about how you might fear spells or curses that would be cast on you or your children or your spouse. Paul knows that he is writing to people who have some legitimate concerns about the spiritual forces that will war against them. He's writing to encourage and to teach and to exhort these Christians based on the truths of the gospel and who it has made them. Last week we learned of Paul's prayer for these believers, how he thanked God for them, and then how he prayed that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, of God. And we saw that this was not just about getting more information, but that these believers would know and have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they would know the hope of his calling. They would know the riches of his inheritance. And then lastly, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. One author I was reading says it this way, if God's call, so we're talking about those three things that he prays for specifically, if God's call looks back at the beginning, and God's inheritance looks on to the end, then surely God's power spans the interim period in between. These three things that Paul calls for are praised for them to know. Surely the, the power spans the interim period in between. It is on this that the apostle concentrates, for only God's power can fulfill the expectation which belongs to his call, which he did before, and brings us safely to the riches of the glory of the final inheritance he will give us in heaven. The Apostle Paul prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And that little phrase at the end is actually quite important as well. In fact, it helps us understand that um, what he's dealing with in the next three verses is on purpose. He's got a spot for it. Because as you read along and you get to these verses, it's almost like he's just rambling on. It's a run-on sentence that every English teacher hates altogether. But what he's doing here is on purpose. The tremendous power of God is exercised on all believers who trust Jesus Christ alone. But this really ought to kind of be the end of the prayer in verse 19. And perhaps technically that's true. You might end your prayer for someone at this spot. But Paul takes the opportunity and this occasion to elaborate, to, to teach, um, and to encourage these Christians in the things which they cannot see, the things that they need to know but they can't see with their natural eyes. You see, it's not the only that there's demonic powers that are working in the heavenly places, and it's not even only that there are good angels, angelic powers that war against those demons, and even more important, more powerful more powerful more decisive thing has occurred and paul knows that they need to know this paul won't leave the idea of power out there as some sort of generic idea general power but rather he will take his time to going through and understanding these next three verses so that he can show us that that power has been demonstrated in a decisive way now if If you and I were trying to give examples of power of God, the power of God, I think I don't think I'm crazy to think that the majority of us would at least go to creation to see his grand designs playing out, to God making incredible things, the making of the heavens and the earth, the populating with all kinds of things that made a space that was empty and void into something that God himself called very good. Uh, I, I think I'd, I would try to demonstrate the power of God by going to creation or maybe even a collection of different things that God did to rescue his people in real life that are known things to kind of demonstrate that power. But that's not where Paul goes. Uh, Paul tells us that the power he is referring to is the power that the Father worked in Christ. Well, let's read verse 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Instead of talking about creation or one of these divine rescue missions, he's going to talk about the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And to be honest, his real focus in all this is the last thing, his exaltation is being seated at the Father's right hand. But, but we'll get to that in a minute. He begins with the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now this is, of course, an event that was documented. It was known. It was something that actually the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 had predicted. An event that many different believers experienced. At one point, you know this, the First Corinthians says that up to 500 at a time had actually seen him. This is something that real people Experience. They, they saw him with their own eyes. They talked to him. They heard him. They even touched him. And they saw him eat. They knew that this was not some figment of their imagination. It wasn't a ghost. Rather, this was the risen, glorified Christ, the first fruits of our resurrection. And We talked a little bit a few weeks ago uh, on, on Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, about the resurrection, its truthfulness, its validity, and its importance for us. There have been resurrections before. We know that. Um, but all those ones ended up with the person eventually dying a natural death. They ended up dead. They still ended up being separated from the body, and their body met corruption. There have been them before, but again, their body saw corruption, their spirits were separated. Uh, but Jesus is completely different. No one has ever died and been raised to live to live eternally thereafter. No one is like Jesus. We find out in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 20-23, that Jesus has secured our resurrection because of his own, because of the power of God in him. It's that power, the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is the power that will also raise you and me in the last day. We know that one day when Christ returns, we too will experience a resurrection like his. That's what Romans 6 tells us. And this is really good news to those that are reading the book of Ephesians. They need this news. Their their resurrection is secure because of the power of God that was exemplified in Jesus Christ. God raising Jesus from the dead. Paul bolsters their confidence, uh, and in the face of death, by demonstrating that God's power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was true. But he moves on. And this is where he really camps out for a while here. Not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But as you can see, Paul says even more than that. Um, Starting the second half of the verse, in verse 20, he says that the power of God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church i mean wow like this is some really lofty language some i would even say cosmic language of total dominion over all things and rulership over the heavens and earth. He's just like kind of stacking up thing after thing to explain what has happened in Jesus as he has seated him at the right hand of the Father. Now we should ask though, I mean where is he getting all this stuff? Remember that no one has actually ever seen the things that he's talking about the seating of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. I mean, in Acts 7, Stephen, the martyr, looks into heaven and sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But other than that, I mean, where did he get all of these details? It's probable, I mean, if we consider Paul and his own uh, experience with Jesus, it's probable that Jesus taught these things to Paul directly when he was learning from him in Arabia for three years before he went to Jerusalem. But there's another place probably more important for all of us since we don't get to experience the same thing that Paul did. Paul is drawing on Scripture. Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Psalm 8, and other places as well. He is showing us how to properly interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the risen Jesus Christ. He's actually helping us understand how we ought to go back and interpret these things properly of those things we may not understand before the coming of Christ. He is, of course, Jesus is, the central character the whole Bible has been pointing to the whole time. But it's not clear until the Messiah arrives all of these prophecies are actually about Him. So I kind of want to do this. I want to stop for a moment and read portions of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 and then Psalm 8 as well. So let's go ahead and begin in Daniel 7. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to, of course you can. In verse 13 through 14, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we got characters here, right? The, the first one, the son of man and the ancient of de- Who is this son of man? I feel like we may have heard that title before somewhere. Haven't we heard that in the New Testament reference before? Yes, we have. In our, in our readings even this morning, we heard Jesus speak of himself as the Son of Man. In Mark 14, he called himself the Son of Man when he predicted his own death and his resurrection. In Mark 9, Jesus taught his disciples saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after these days, three days, he will rise. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Daniel prophecy is all about the enthronement of the rightful king the son of man who has come to the ancient of days to receive dominion and power over all the universe and we know who the son of man is the prophecy given to daniel was the one was that one would come who would be worthy to take dominion over all things forever and that god would give him this authority that he would be lord of all And this is what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law. He was qualified in every way to be what the earth needed. And as a result, God raised him from the dead and seated him as the supreme authority over the universe. It's amazing. The event that Daniel witnesses in Daniel 7 is none other than the enthronement of Jesus Christ after he has been raised from the dead, the perfect son of man. And by that, I think we're supposed to think of the second Adam the one who actually was able to do all the things that the first Adam failed to do. Let me move on to Psalm 110. Uh, Listen for the overtones here of kingship and dominion. It won't be difficult. Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Who could possibly be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? You, kind of know, you know this. Hebrews 7 tells us the answer. It's Jesus. By the power of an indestructible life, Jesus has shown us that he is indeed a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. So, I mean, like, you mean, Chris, that the one that's described in Psalm 110 was predicting Jesus Christ to sit at the right hand of God? Yes. And and, and that he would put the mighty scepter in his hand. I mean, the overwhelming tone of this psalm is power and authority over all rulers, all authorities, all chiefs reigning at the right hand of the Father. Now, That's Psalm 110. Before we jump into Psalm 8, consider for a moment when we get to this, that this psalm was written to talk about Adam and mankind in general and their responsibility to God to rule over creation. Our first father, Adam, the son of man, was given dominion and stewardship of the whole earth, but he rejected the lordship of the Ancient of Days and did not fulfill what was given to him. He believed the lie of Satan, and forever humanity found themselves falling short of the glory of God. Yet David writes these words, trying to make sense of this, in Psalm 8, 3-6, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. David describes the task that God has given humanity and marvels at the immense glory and responsibility put upon man as God's steward. We know that God did give dominion over the works of God's hands, and he put all things under his feet. But Adam rejected that task and failed to be the proper head of all of God's people. But as we'll see, Paul is telling us that Jesus has properly fulfilled every one of mankind's responsibilities with perfect righteousness and joy in the Father. These are the passages that Paul is drawing from. Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Psalm 8. These are the ones that he's drawing from to talk about the power of God working through Christ from his resurrection to his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. So let's now go back to Ephesians 1. This is what he says in verses 20 through 23. I'll kind of work through it. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay, we talked about that a little bit. "...and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Now, this is not so much talking spatially. Uh, he's in a certain location at the right hand of the Father. But that now he has been given the place of universal lordship. No one else sits at the right hand of the Father. It has been reserved for Christ. If you remember, there are occasions when Jesus told his disciples that his time had not come yet sometimes referring to his crucifixion, but ultimately really referring to his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, his glorification. But here we are. Christ has obeyed the Father and fully completed his work on the cross. And up from the grave he rose. He has done all that he must do to set in motion true ultimate kingship. And it is the Father who makes this official by seating him at his right hand. He seats him in the throne room next to the Ancient of Days. But Jesus isn't the Father's jester or his lapdog or some sort of ornament. He has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. I mean, this is a whole string of descriptions that declare that there isn't anyone that you could even think of that is not below Christ. Everyone is below him. Christ is above earthly kings. He's above enormous empires. He's above ruling confederacies. He's above angels. He's above demons. And he's above the great deceiver himself. I love this little phrase, above every name that is named. I mean, in other words... All the animals, all the humans, all the principalities, all the powers, everything that has a name, yeah, he's above it. I mean, and remember when Daniel said that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Remember when he said that? Paul covers that here too. He says that Christ is above all authority, all names, for all of time. Not one you know, in this age alone, not alone in this age, but also in the one to come. And then we know that Paul isn't just talking about generic time here, like uh, the 60s and then the 70s and, and the time to come. He's not talking only about that. He's talking about the age to come, the, the fullness of time, the time when Christ will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But then Paul makes sure that this isn't just a position only. Anyone can be king of a country, you know, uh, but that doesn't mean that his people are loyal or that his enemies are submissive. Unfortunately, we know that puppet kings are almost powerless, but that's not Jesus. Uh, In verse 22, he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. He's not like in Robin Hood, he's not like Prince John, where, you know, he's. He's trying to put off these airs of being such a great king. Then behind his back, people do whatever they want to do and, and just try to make sure that they stroke his ego. He's not a token king. He's not a puppet king. He's the real king where every other power is subjected to him. The word you see there, of course, is he put all things. Now, that's right, uh, but the idea here that we understand is that he has put all things like in subjection underneath him, beneath Christ's feet, by force. They cannot do anything about it. They can take all their power and they will never, ever be able to maneuver themselves out of Christ's rule. They are placed under the feet of the victor, Christ himself. And this victor has won for himself the position as supreme ruler over all. Paul calls him the head over all things. Christ, in his exaltation, has done all that he must do to remedy the problem of his people's sin and the rule of the dark forces over creation. There's a reason that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. But Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and death in his crucifixion and in its all-important resurrection from the dead. He has done all and he is the victor over Satan, sin, and death but the verse isn't even over yet. You see that Paul says, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The supreme ruler of the universe who crushes all powers of darkness and rules over all creation is also the Lord of the church. He has given as head over all things I'm sorry, he was given as head over all things to the church. Remember that we kind of started back in verse 19, right? And remember that that power that we're talking about is toward us who believe, in other words, towards the church. Christ's exaltation leaves him at the very top of all things. And this is a gift to his people, a benevolent king who is all-powerful who has conquered all things and reigns properly with no one to dispute or thwart his kingship. And Paul ends with a note of reassurance and encouragement for you and me. He has given Christ to the church, but, but who's the church? It is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. The church, the gathered assembly, can do all it wants to be the church of its own power. But without the rightful head as his ruler, there is no church. We know that Christ indwells and fills his church. It is God's temple. We we are going to see more language about that soon as well. And he alone can make this building by filling it. Otherwise, it's just an empty shell. This brings us all the way back to the beginning, though. What kind of power is Paul describing here in Ephesians 1? Part of the answer is, is that the power is toward us who believe. This is a wonderful blessing for you and me. We understand that this is the power that raised Christ from the dead and that seated him at the right hand of the Father. And we know that that power then, God gave Christ to the church as its head. We understand that he put all things in the entire universe underneath his lordship, underneath his kingship. Man! I mean, this is incredible. I mean, what a tremendous power to raise Christ from the dead, to seat him at the right hand of the Father, to put all things under his feet, to give him as the head over all things to the church. I mean, wow, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds almost fantastic, like otherworldly and really kind of like some sort of fantasy novel. But what in the world does that have to do with you and me? I mean, let's just get real for a minute here. Yeah, you're yeah, still sitting on your couch or wherever you're sitting right now or a table. Things are so normal. We're not seeing these fantastical beings around us. What in the world does this passage then have to do with you and me? Why would Paul pray for me to know this power and then demonstrate it with a description of Christ's enthronement in heaven where no one else can see this experience at all? Like, why would he do that? I mean, I know it's supposed to be for my heart. I know that. He just told us that, that it would have the knowledge of him impressed on me. But quite honestly, Chris, I mean, this description really seems like it's just helping my head knowledge, helping me to know more about the end times, helping me to know about, more about what the things that I can't really see and make sure I can get those answers right on the test. What in the world does Christ's enthronement have to do with me and you exactly? I want to say two things. Number one, Remember that it is this power that that, that makes all of what we just talked about reality. It's this power that is to us who believe. Remember that all the grandeur and the cosmic nature of Christ's enthronement and the exaltation over all things is what has worked in yours and my salvation, in our redemption. He is the God of our redemption, our calling, our our choosing, of him choosing, of him making sure that we are in his inheritance. It is that power, the one that put Christ on the throne, that's at work in you and me. uh, Unbelievable. It's another reminder that our redemption is not some kind of mental assent to a set of philosophies and teachings from that guy back in Galilee. No, our redemption was costly and impossible It couldn't be done by anybody else. It required the immeasurable power of God to be accomplished. Our salvation is no small thing. It's not just us deciding we'll be good people. No, it had to be accomplished by the great power of God that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. I think we need to read this and believe that something incredible happens when a human being trusts Jesus Christ for salvation. I think we need to be humbled about our Christian status, guys. we got to understand that it took the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, something impossible for man to do, and that seated him at the right hand of the throne where no one else is ever worthy of that position. It took that power being exercised by God to make us his own. Feel small. Make sure you understand who you are. Make sure you remember the power of God as he has worked in us. And so our first point is, brothers and sisters, worship the God of power, the one that deals in these ways with his people and has exercised the power on his people, on his true possession, to win them for his own, the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. But the second thing, I'd like you to consider that Christ is head over all things. Let's remember that C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther weren't making stuff up. They talked about devils and demons that were busy at work in the world around us. We are in the midst of spiritual battle. Now, this morning as you're watching this, afternoon, whenever you're watching this, right now as I preach this, it's not crazy for you and me to think about the temptations that we face in light of demonic activity. It's not silly to think that there are rulers and dark forces who are around you doing all they can to defame the name of Christ and to cause us to dabble in little idols that seem so harmless, distractions that pull us away from Jesus Christ himself. We are up against a cruel and malicious enemy who will pervert any good thing that he can get his hands on for something to turn against the king of the universe. He is the father of lies. He is a murderer, and all of his henchmen are out to do the same thing. In every difficult situation, I'd venture to guess that the spiritual forces of darkness are working to attack Christ and his kingdom. And that means that you and I are not just dealing with natural difficulties in life. Paul tells us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Maybe those people at Ephesus got it a little easier than we do right now. But if I can try to speak this out, we have to understand that we are engaged in battle. We may not be able to see it with these eyes, but it is happening right now. So I, I say to you, here's a quick question. Are you up to the fight against these evil powers? Do you have the power to, to go up against those who you cannot see and who are skilled in the art of deception and temptation? Can you oppose demons yourself? What chance in the world do you and I have against principalities and powers? None. But Paul has told us that one has been seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named for all of time in this age and the next Paul's told us that God put all things, all things under his feet, and that he gave him as head over all things to the church, to his people. Wow. You and I are no match for demonic powers. We can't do it. But Christ, he's not just another player to be thrown into the spiritual battle as though he's going to be a really good champion uh, for, for the people. He's the one who will make his enemies his footstool, all of them. He's the one, as David says in Psalm 110, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, who will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, who will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. In short, he rules over all. And since Christ is head over all things, and since he is given to us as our Lord and head, let us draw near to him for refuge and strength and hope. You could even say that because of our connection to Christ, you know, we are more than conquerors. You may have heard that before. Brothers and sisters, our struggle against sin is real. There are real powers that are fighting against you and me. And of course, our wicked hearts, you know, they, they love to go back and dabble in the things of the old man. But remember that our Lord has begun the eventual and permanent defeat of the enemy. It will happen. All will be done when Christ returns. Remember that your Lord is the king over every demon. It's no wonder, but what we're saying here is hold tightly to Christ. Recognize that being in Christ is everything. That if you are in Christ, you are secure. And no demon could ever have power over you if you are in the grasp of your Lord Jesus Christ. Find your victory in him. He has been given authority over every power and will crush every enemy. So let us not fight against sin alone or just naturally as though we could do it or as though we you know, just need help once in a while but rather in the strength of his might alone. Let's pray. Christ, you are king. Christ, you are king over your church, but more importantly, you are seated at the right hand of the Father and you are king over all. We worship you today for who you are. We thank you for our redemption and all that it took for you to win our salvation. Lord, we are totally unworthy. We do not understand it but we glory in the fact that Jesus Christ has saved us. We ask, as this week goes on, as it begins maybe, we start going back to work, working with our families, battling against all the different things that we struggle with. Lord, I pray that you would not give a foothold for the devil, for his demons, but rather that you would help us to understand that we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. We trust him that we would not be given over to lust or to power, or to anger, or to control, or to temptations galore. But rather, Lord, help us to find you to be our victor, that we would continue to trust you for all the different things that we need. We thank you and praise you for all that you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.